across campus, online, and on 12:51 a.m. This, this, this is your student radio station. Hello, welcome back to another episode of the Alternative View, our second two-hour crime time show here on Raw 12:51 a.m. It's great to have your company again, listening to us this afternoon. I hope you enjoyed listening to us last week. Hope you enjoyed the show. It's great to be back on this sort of one. Hopefully, you've got your company again. Whether you have been listening to us on air. And, of course, on our streaming platforms as well. We do put out an edited version of the show without music on Spotify or Mixcloud on all other streaming sites after the show has aired on Raw as well. So please do make sure, if you can't catch us there, to listen to that as well. But, yes, hello. It's good to be back. And what a show we have. What a week it has been. It's been quite a dramatic week, just from Dominic Cummings to students coming home for Christmas to Brexit. There is so much for us. To get through this week this has been a pretty dramatic week and you, we will be covering all of that today with my fantastic and esteemed panel so firstly let's bring in I have always referred to him as my guiding light in every week as we've done it in this show but now I think if you have been following Enoch's uh, Facebook recently you will now know him as the world's most legendary Earth, Wind and Fire tribute act it is Enoch <laughs> McKinsey good Hello, afternoon Cam. good afternoon Cam thanks for having me on yeah it's if if if, we, if you know Enoch, you've seen his Movember post. He's doing Movember, by the way. Um, how, firstly, how's Movember going for you? Is the moustache coming on? I, I don't know what's happened. I remember when I did Movember back in secondary school, I grew a great moustache. It was amazing. And now I'm looking at myself in the mirror and I'm going, what, what, what's going on? Where's the, why is nothing growing? What's happening? <laughs> no, I mean, I'm, I'm quite lucky for... Everyone who knows me, I grow facial hair very, very quickly. And yeah, I still I still haven't set up my Movember page. I really, if I can save it in the last two weeks, I still think it's worth it. But speaking of Movember, we did have our interview um, with Seth and Thomas from Movember last week. Please do tune in and listen to the show again to listen to that interview. It's fantastic to hear about all the things that are going on on campus for Movember. And fingers crossed, Enoch, you do Get, get enough facial hair from that. Otherwise, that Earth, Wind & Fire tribute act video that you did is our little motivation. <laughs> it just seems pointless, really. No. Anyway, let's bring in my second guest now. Um, it is someone who, if you listen to Raw Breakfast, and you know I do Thursday mornings, you'll also hear a very another voice who does that show with me. It is Noah Keats. Good afternoon, Hello. Noah. Hi, Cam. Thank you very much for having me here. It's nice being able to just sort of relax as one of the sort of guests rather than co-anchoring a show. Yeah, it is. An- anchoring is is very tiring. Like literally, yeah. I, can- I come off doing the shows, and again, we're doing them online at the moment. So obviously, it's not the it's not as manic as the studio. But even so, I am literally coming off. And I'm not going to lie; I generally try to go to sleep for a good. I need like a good 20, 30 minute nap after I come off air. It tires me out, but love it equally at the same time. And of course, Noah, we do um, raw breakfast together. With Rebecca, um, it's a lot very, of fun. It's a very time for a shameless plug, but we are on air tomorrow morning. We are. You must tune in. And it's sort of very different from the alternative view. You know, I've looked at the running order for this evening and it's going to be a sort of serious news stories. But for um, Raw Breakfast, we are a bit more light entertainment. And it is, I think they're both, um, they both complement each other really well. No, definitely. And I guess the thing is, we, we try to be lighthearted on this show. We try to poke fun. Uh, politics on our breakfast show tomorrow we we've almost poked fun at everything include we have some great stuff coming up we have a head-to-head on cost of v prep which i'm very much looking forward to we are talking about um the in-betweeners which you you are starting you have i've you, watched have you started i've watched that? the first two episodes i have this is breaking news 
Um, all I'll say so far is I'm yet to be impressed, but you know, I'm going to well, give you, it some you, more You are time. not either not a man of sufficient culture, or you've just not right, watched the right bits of it yet. No, well, it's great to have you on. And let's bring on someone else, first time here on the Alternative View, someone who did um, part of the election coverage and our first, first postgraduate as well. So we are expanding our base. It is Gar K. Lung. Good afternoon. Hi. Good afternoon. How's it going? It is going very good. Uh, going well for you as well? Yeah, not too badly. Thank you. Yeah, just uh, so plugging on were... the research as always. Yeah. So you were on the um, election coverage. That's right. Yes. Firstly, how how did you find doing that? Was that the first time you'd done anything with Raw? Um, I, I actually worked as a journalist um, a long, long time ago before I started my doctorate, uh, and I covered the 2015 general election uh, for that. So, it, incidentally, I think we're talking about Jake Berry uh, on today's show, we, and we I will actually... be talking about Jake Berry very shortly. Yes. And I, I, I covered that constituency back in 2015. Oh wow. Yes. How, how, how did you? Small how, claims to fame. Yeah. How did you find it? Because obviously, a lot of people talk about the Conservative Party and Northern voters at the moment. This new appeal that they've had there. Did you get a sense that 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 was something that was coming from your time, even as far early as twenty fifteen? Uh, that's a good question. Um, uh, I don't think there was that sense of a kind of a Northern Renaissance, if you like, if that's the right phrase for it. Uh, but it's something that's I think been brewing post-2015, post-2016. Well, so it, it wasn't is... as uh, as strong or as evident uh, when I was covering the 2015 election, but I think in the aftermath of, of that election, and particularly in the aftermath of uh, the Brexit vote, then I think um, the North started becoming a bit, um, a bit more involved in the conversation, and even more so now with um, particularly uh, Andy Burnham's uh, almost meteoric rise uh, back into the public uh, spotlight uh, after uh, the local versus national lockdown debates. Yeah, I mean, the North has become a region, I think, that's really asserted itself, particularly over the last 12 months. Very interesting to see. Well, it's great to have you on, Garke. It's great to have Enoch and Noah back on the show as well. Now, um, time for us, obviously, to run through this week in news. And there, as I said at the start, there has been a lot that has taken place over the last week. And so I'm going to try and condense it into 60 seconds as best as I can. So this is the news in 60 seconds. Are we ready to go? I don't know why I'm saying that. It's only me counting myself down. But here we go. Three, two, one. So obviously the biggest story of the last week, um, Dominic Cummings and Lee Kane departed Downing Street. Um, Lee Kane, he was originally offered the role of chief of staff, but there was apparent intervention by Carrie Simons, the fiance of the prime minister, and led to this power struggle at Downing Street that led to the departure, firstly, of Lee Kane as director of communications. But then Dominic Cummings, who has been the special advisor, very much motivating a lot of what has been going on in the government recently. So quite an interesting power struggle there. Boris Johnson, he is set to reset and relaunch a lot of the government's priorities. It's said to be really focusing on that levelling up, although he is now self-isolating. So interesting to see how that goes. Meanwhile, coronavirus cases continue to rise, as sadly do deaths across the UK. Although in Scotland, they are moving out of the national lockdown restrictions, although still potentially into four tiers there. Businesses, though, continue to struggle through the election. EasyJet today lost £1.27 billion, their first ever annual loss. Meanwhile, US election, Donald Trump still hasn't conceded, although Joe Biden is set to win 360 232. And finally, Lewis Hamilton became a seven-time Formula One world champion over the weekend, breaking pretty much every record in the book. And that is the news this week in 60 seconds. So yeah, fantastic to uh fantastic to have on my S on this week. And Lewis Hamilton, of course, I have to say, if um 
as a massive F1 fan, firstly, I've been following Lewis Hamilton since the start of his career. It's absolutely fantastic to have a seven-time world champion holding pretty much every other record in the sport. I never thought that day would come. So, yeah, really great to see that happening. I was very happy. If you didn't watch the Grand Prix over the weekend as well, fantastic. Make sure you do. Anyway, let's now move on to um, some of the other stories that have taken place this, this week. And there is quite a lot. So, Garke, let's come to you first. Um, Hurricane Iota, tell us a yes, little bit so about what's this happening is there. The, this is the record-breaking 30th named storm uh, in the current hurricane season. So this is the most named storms uh, ever in one Atlantic hurricane season. So Hurricane Iota, uh, the fact that it's called Iota should give you a clue as to how many storms we've had because uh, the uh, meteorological agency in the US has now resorted to the Greek letter uh, alphabet. Uh, since they already exhausted um, their English names uh, for uh, this particular season, the, the, the usual list of names. Uh, so we're now, in a, we're now into a Hurricane Iota, uh, which is currently um, <clears throat> wreaking havoc across uh, the um, region of Central America. Uh, it was forecast uh, earlier this week to uh, arrive as a Category 4 hurricane. So I think this is the seventh uh, major hurricane, so Category 3+. plus. Uh, of the season, uh, which again is is a, a very unusual, uh, and it comes hot on the heels of Hurricane Eta uh, earlier this month, uh, which flattened pretty much the same region. So they've had two hurricanes in Central America within the space of a couple of weeks. So um, absolute devastation is probably on the cards. Um, this is, uh, as you uh, probably intuitively gather, a very economically deprived area of the world. They're gonna uh, they they took uh, Eta pretty hard. And they're probably going to um, suffer even more as a result of IOTA, which is going to compound the damage and the destruction. Yeah. And of course, uh, and... Sorry, go on. To say with coronavirus as well and all the impacts that that's having on the global economy, it is very interesting to see, I think, really how that will go. And actually, how we haven't really heard a lot about the Atlantic hurricane season. We do does tend to pop up on the new UK news cycle at least once every year. But this year, obviously, a lot of other priorities have gone away. Well, very interesting to see how that goes. Um, Noah. Um, obviously, environmentalism has been a real key theme in politics over the last few years. And you've got quite an interesting story that came up today in The Guardian. Yes, a fascinating exclusive story by The Guardian showing that 1% of um, flyers, the frequent flyers, represent nearly half of the um, aviation's carbon emissions from 2018. As that really is sort of interesting look at how, um, you know, plane flying, how going abroad can have an impact on the environment. But actually, it's not equally spread among every flyer is disproportionately impacted by those that fly a lot more. And um, the study in The Guardian shows that apparently only 11% of the world's population actually flew in uh, 2018. And in many countries, you had a large proportion of people that didn't fly at all. So 53% of people in the US didn't go abroad in 2018. 65% of people in Germany didn't go abroad, which I think is a mixture of both people recognising the impact of um, flying on the environment and also perhaps not being able to afford it. Um, and this links to the environment very explicitly through calls of things like a flight flyers tax, you know, being taxed extra for going abroad, which I've always been very nervous about because I thought it would penalise the poorest people that use, like you were saying earlier, companies like EasyJet and Ryanair for maybe going abroad for their one holiday a year. And I don't think they should be unfairly penalised. I don't want flying to become something that's just preserved for the rich and the elites. But um, I think a really fascinating story from The Guardian showing that while flying is clearly bad in the environment, it's certain individuals are causing more harm through carbon emissions than others well yeah and it's going to be interesting to see obviously a lot of the environmental approaches that governments are taking do they 
do it through the state, through the government, or do they seek to do more through the private sector? We'll be looking a little bit at the sort of public versus private sector thing a little later on a slightly different aspect with coronavirus. But fascinating story there, Noah, definitely. Um, Enoch, um, Elon Musk. Obviously, Elon Musk, we learned this week he has a moderate case of COVID-19. But we also learned that SpaceX is also getting up to some new activities. Update us. Tell us what's going on. Uh, I, well, Elon, it's a pretty, pretty easy to sneer at Elon Musk, but SpaceX had had some pretty impressive stuff happening right recently. Um, SpaceX newly launched Dragon Capsule, recently posited four astronauts at the International Space Station. After 27, a 27-hour 27 complete automated flight to NASA's Kennedy Space Center, um, three Americans and one Japanese astronaut were deposited at the uh, International Space Station, marking the first time a private um, space flight is taking people to the International Space Station. So a real revolution in space happening right now. No, exactly. And of course, this comes at a, during a time where obviously Donald Trump has been trying to, we know there's the Space Force, I believe it is, that he's been trying to build up. And the UK have also been going back into space as well. Do you think, though, that it's privateers who are going to be leading the way now in the in the race to get to space? Well, I, I think you never really know, do you? I mean, if you want, if you said six years ago that the private sector would dominate the space industry back when, you know, NASA was first stepping from the moon, people were largely out caught. If you look at the situation now, it would seem obvious that privateers now own the future of space. But who knows where the future lies? Maybe it will become, maybe governments finally start taking responsibility to say space seriously again, and we'll see a re-engagement there. But who knows? Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely an interesting one, because, of course, space was the big remit of the 60s and the early 70s, seeming to make a renaissance now, definitely. So very interesting there. Um, just one last story that really grabbed me over the last week. Um, Jake Berry, uh, of course, Garke was mentioning earlier, covering him in his constituency in 2015. Um, Jake Berry, of course, set up the Northern Research Group. He chairs that, basically, Northern Research Group code for a chance to moan about the government for the fact that they don't think they're doing well in the North. Um, they set up this group and he was talking to a select committee about Northern culture and the importance of preserving distinct Northern culture. But he got into rather a lot of trouble because he made a statement basically saying that Northerners don't like ballet, that this is not a distinct part of Northern culture. That's for the Southerners. Whereas people in the North, you know, we prefer football. That's our culture. And of course, a lot of things came with this. Many people accused Jake Berry of classism, a lot of Arts companies within the North had quite quite a few opinions to say on this, saying that a lot of the contributions to arts have come from the North in the last few years. So it's just an interesting one because obviously the Conservative Party are trying to make um, make inroads into the North. We saw they broke down the Red Wall voters in 2019. And the North has become a key part of their voter base now. But comments like that, and with particularly with the fact that they've got to keep these voters and they have to show a constant commitment, comments like that may not necessarily help them. So, again, be very interesting to see how that develops. So that was this week in news. As you can see, quite a lot has happened. And coming up next, we are going to cover perhaps the biggest story of them all from the last week. All the calamity and all the stress that has been taking place in Downing Street. But first, this. Music. Welcome back to another week of Psychedemics. Hello, everybody. You're listening to The Vinny Show. You are listening to Rockstar. I'm backstage Casper. We're starting to go. Hello, guys. Hello. Hello. Sports. There's a team spirit going on behind it. You're all rooting for each other. Oh, yeah. Good job. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
the idea of popular films being nominated for Oscars? I just think the style that Marvel has made has just mm. put them like way above. Speech. You must get to the Madison Stats building using three different modes of transport. Oh my god, there's a trolley. It's <laughs> really all about like educating, networking, and sharing our stories. I think the SU has a really uh, important role in engaging students with politics. News. Good evening and welcome to the big decision. Ben and Larissa tied. This is your student radio station. This is Raw 1251 AM. Across campus, online, and on 12.51am, this, this, this is your student radio station. So, the big story of the last week was Dominic Cummings and Lee Kane's departures from number 10. And for those of you who weren't aware, this time last week, there was a lot of rumours about Lee Kane potentially being made the new chief of staff to Boris Johnson. Of course, Lee Kane being the former communications director to the prime minister. As the week went on, though, scenes started potential power struggle behind the scene with Carrie Simons, the fiance of um, Boris Johnson, and also um, a history of art graduate from Warwick as well. Just thought I'd randomly throw our connections into this. But as a former... Yeah, so Carrie Simmons' fiance of the Prime Minister was said to be sort of get most against this. And then as the week went on, Lee Kane firstly left his post, I believe it was on Thursday night. And then Dominic Cummings was said to very much be wavering about potentially whether he was staying or not. And then we got the news that he would be, he was supposed to be leaving at Christmas anyway, but we got the news that he would be leaving Downing Street last Friday. So obviously very, very monumental. But um, firstly, let's start off with your, my guest's first reactions to what happened last week. So, Garke, I'll come to you first. What was your reaction to the departures of Dominic Cummings and Lee Kane from number 10? Um, finally, <laughs> in a word, I think this has been uh, a long time coming in the sense of, you know, Dominic Cummings has uh, caused quite a lot of havoc in the... Um, uh, Johnson administration. I think the fact that he quite explicitly broke the lockdown rules in the middle of summer uh, with his now notorious trip to Barnard Castle uh, it means that the government meant the government lost a lot of legitimacy. Uh, so I think retrospectively, it was only a question of when he would go, not if, right? And and, and the fact that he didn't go straight after the Barnard Castle episode shows precisely how um, incompetent and insensitive to the kind of the the general public mood uh, this government really is. Well, that's certainly one perspective I think that can be said about that. Enoch, of course, you um, ran the Cummings cast on Raw that took place directly after that incident. And you discussed that matter quite at length, obviously, with Dominic Cummings' notorious eye test to Barna Castle and driving up to Durham itself very much not necessarily breaking the rules, but very much seen against the spirit of the rules that was being put forward by the government at the time. What's your first reaction to Dominic Cummings and Lee Kane's departure? Relief. Uh, my first action was purely relief that the ridiculous stories we were hearing of, of last week were seemingly over. Um, Dominic Cummings, I think over the past year, Dominic Cummings has been almost an entirely malignant force in our politics. Um, I don't think he's been... 
I think he helped the Tories win the 19, uh, 2019 election. Um, I think that's the only thing making really that Tories, I think, have really saved on positive for them. Every every step he's made since then has alienated people, ruined allies, and cost them easy victories. Um, and I think now that he's gone, hopefully our government, um, whether or not I agree with them or not, can now get down to doing some actual honest to God work on fixing the crisis, the many crises facing this country. Well, we'll go on to that sort of legacy and what next for the government in a bit. But no, I just want to come to you because, of course, a lot of people know about Dominic Cummings, but Lee Kane is the figure a lot of people aren't the most aware of. Of course, Lee Kane very much seen as someone who's worked well with Dominic Cummings in the past, very much worked heavily with Cummings in a communications role at Vote Leave. He was been Boris Johnson's personally very much his right-hand man for the last four years, working with him in the Foreign Office. So what was your first reaction and how much of an impact do Dominic Cummings and Lee Kane's departures have? Well, for me, it was just amazing how quickly it all seemed to happen. It was only really in a matter of days. We'd know there was going to be some changes in Downing Street, like Allegra Stratton starting these press conferences in the new year, which we might talk about later. But it amazed me how much the visions and the sort of inner turmoil seemed to erupt, really, in front of the national press in such a, a quick period of time. And we look back on it and it seems, you know, you look back on it and think, oh, it happened day after day, these sort of internal squabbling. But actually, it was in a really quick period of time, I think that Cummings was gone by Friday evening. This individual who many people were call, uh, previously called the most powerful person in the UK, now completely diminished, you know, whatever blog posts he writes or whatever books he publishes, he's no longer within Downing Street. And I think it's a good point you made on the fact of who is the Prime Minister's right-hand man or woman or whatever. They are important. Backbench MPs are important. Cabinet um, office ministers are important. But fundamentally, it's the special advisors that day-to-day are helping to shape what the government's message is. And clearly, their departure will, will mean something different happens, whether it's better than what we previously got. We don't know. But there is going to be some form of change now. Well, that's a very interesting point you raised there, because actually one of the groups of people that were most happy with Dominic Cummings' departure was a lot of the backbench Conservative MPs, many of whom have felt maligned by the government of they almost ignored, not just regarding the election and a lot of strategies that were there, but particularly with coronavirus, especially with the North as well, a lot of the restrictions that have been posed there. There's been this distance that has been seen between um, Tory backbenches and um, number 10 and some of the appointments that we know so far as people coming into 10 Downing Street seem to resolve that um James Slack who was the former editor of the Daily Mail most famous for the enemies of the people front page he is now coming into Downing Street as its new um, director of communications and has a lot of links with the Tory backbenchers so no if I can come back to you on this point how much of an impact do you think their departure and this has on the Tory party and do you think this is the start of Boris Johnson looking out more for the backbenches within the Tory party and moving on from the vote leave operation that very much seemed to dominate and run a lot of policy in government. Uh, I think you could potentially be right there. I think what you've really seen from Dominic Cummings and Lee Kane is like them or dislike them, they're clearly effective at winning elections or winning referenda. Now, that's good in the short term. Obviously, politics is all about getting power. But once you've got power, you have to know what to do with it. And it's clear that they haven't been able to work out to resolve what they want their vision to be within government. Now, inevitably, some of that has been shaped by the pandemic. They've had their messaging for what you know, normal 2020 would have been like, um, you know, completely transformed by the pandemic spreading across the country and spreading across the world. But it's clear that they haven't managed to work out how best to operate when you've actually won that power and know what to do with it. And so you hear these stories about sort of Dominic Cummings, like foolishly, you know, making a grenade symbol every time he um, left a room, you know, very sort of childlike 
infantile uh, means of behaviour, which in my mind doesn't fit someone um, who has that much power. But you are really right on the relationship between a prime minister and his backbenchers, because um, you know um, John, Boris Johnson enjoys a majority of eighty. Yet despite that, lots of new intake of Conservative MPs have been very critical over lots of legislation, be it related to lockdown measures or how the government has operated. So it's clear that even though many of these um, new MPs and those rebel seats owe their success to Boris Johnson, that doesn't mean they're simply going to be loyalists. And so it's unsurprising, really, that Johnson has tried to um, strengthen this relationship with his backbenchers that's been so tarnished over the last few months. Well, it's a very interesting path to explore. Garke, obviously you mentioned earlier that you... um. Uh, covered Jake Berry before, one of those backbench MPs who has very much been leading the sort of concerns and the, not the revolt, but certainly a lot of the criticism of the way that the likes of Cummings and the advisors have treated the North and almost sidelined backbench MPs over that matter. Do you think that MPs like Jake Berry right now will be happy with Cummings' departure that it allows, even though Cummings was very much at the forefront of promoting that levelling up agenda, do you think that perhaps coming to departure makes that even easier now? I think in the short term, that's certainly a possibility, right? That uh, those uh, backbench MPs who were formerly neglected feel, uh, feel emboldened to speak out right, about their concerns. But I think in the long term, it depends where Cummings goes after this. I, mean, I could imagine him, for example, uh, going into a remodeled Brexit party with Nigel Farage, uh, which will uh, reshape itself as an anti-lockdown party rather than a Brexit party. Uh, and, um, you know, possibly uh, uh, coming back into uh, power in that sense and becoming a, a bit of a thorn in the side uh, for the prime minister, um, which might mean that the prime minister might end up pivoting uh, policy back in that sort of Cummings direction rather than, uh, rather than including uh, the backbenchers more in the in in the in the policy direction so i think uh, i think it that fundamentally shows how much of a kingmaker uh people like Dominic cummings really can be uh when it comes to uh the current political climate well yeah of course dominic cummings was very much the man behind a lot of the slogans that one vote leave things like take back control but also get brexit done that slogan and then a lot of the early messaging um, throughout the pandemic, the stay home, protect the NHS, save lives was put down to coming. So it's an interesting one, I suppose, Enoch, when you look at um, the communication strategy, which is something that Cummings been, has been at the forefront of, because it seemed to be going well until recently. So do you think that perhaps Dominic Cummings' departure is very much more reflective of incompetence within government, particularly the fact that he's gone early or knowing that he was planning to leave at the end of the year? Anyway, is this something that's very much more of his own volition, almost that he's kind of gone as far as he can now? Um, I, I think it is a question of Dominic Cummings has reached the end of what is achievable. Um, his style of politics is, well, we talked about this, I think, on, on the, after the election show, where we discussed whether or not Brexit and Trumpism, that, that was out. Maybe the, the ideology is still there, but the style of politics Dominic Cummings um, sort of embodied very aggressive, very adversarial, picking fights at every possible turn. I do think we're seeing that is on its way out. It doesn't fit with the new mode Boris Johnson wants to engage in. Um, so I think you can. I don't want to say. I don't want to say incompetence because it's. Um, it's one thing to be incompetent. Um, it's one thing to have a style of politics that no longer works. I think as a style of politics no longer works. And now, it, it just at the final moment, it cost him all the allies he could possibly use to bail about this disaster. 
Well, I mean, it's been obviously quite a tumultuous year for the government and for Dominic Cummings as well. I guess really the now the last point I really want to focus on with regards to this is where does the Conservative Party go next? Where does indeed this whole idea of the reset in government? And we heard this week that despite self-isolation, Boris Johnson is still planning to go ahead with this reset. Um, a lot of it is said to involve potential environmental legislation. We know Carrie Simmons is a very strong environmentalist. And that could include measures, for example, like a road mileage tax, which was um, adopted by um, Tony Blair 13 years ago and eventually dropped after its unpopularity. Um, there's a lot really to say on that, that this government is perhaps trying to reset itself and remodel itself more within the Boris of the mayor of London, that very much that liberal one nation mayor. And a lot of people have said that Dominic Cummings brought a very divisive culture war sort of style approach that very much worked against his favour and didn't get done what he wanted to do. So, Garke, let's come back to you on this. Where do you think this, how much of an impact do you think this departure has when it comes to the idea of a reset in government? Do you think that they are going to go ahead with that now? And what do you think it's going to look like? Uh, I think it's very much an open question because uh, Cummings was so dominant in the policy agenda. Um, it, it, the, the, the policy agenda is now wide open and anyone could capture uh, that sort of window, as it were. So um, I, I think Carrie Simmons certainly could make, could, uh, certainly could have more room to make a move and to really push that environmental uh, agenda forward. Um, but it's, it's really there for anyone's taking, in my view. Well, that's a certainly a very interesting perspective. You mentioned Carrie Simmons there, and she's been very much seen as central to the move to get Dominic Cummings out of Downing Street. Do you think that perhaps this is the start, if we talk about that agenda, that perhaps she is now running the show almost in Downing Street? We know Boris Johnson likes to delegate power away from himself and to his advisors. So do you think she is taking a much greater role? Do you think it's right that the prime minister's fiance should have such a potentially influential role? That's a very good question. Uh, I think this has generally been a hallmark of uh, the Johnson administration. Uh, the fact that he's very much been responsive to current circumstances and also responsive to the people around him. There doesn't seem to be much of a sort of a clear ideological direction from him personally, right? Um, and, and it's a very good question as to the, the legitimacy of um, his spouse's um, views, if you like, in the public arena. Um, so it, it very much kind of parallels the Trump administration in a sense. Right, this kind of vacuum at the heart of this ideological vacuum at the heart of uh, the Johnson government. Um, so I think the fact that it's Carrie Simmons, as in Boris Johnson's spouse, that itself raises an important question. But, uh, the, but it's immaterial to the content of the legislation itself. And I think the content of the legislation, regardless of who proposes it, is probably a step in the right direction, although very far short of what's actually needed in terms of environmental legislation. Well, there's certainly quite an interesting perspective. An interest you mentioned Donald Trump there, because obviously Joe Biden being president-elect now, and there has been a lot of people saying perhaps that Joe Biden's slightly nicer style of politics that isn't so divisive, and the victory of that almost convinced Johnson to move away from the divisive approach of Cummings. Enoch, I want to come to you next. Where do you think this reset is going to go? Do you think it's going to radically change the opinion of this current government? Um... I think we are looking at well, Boris Johnson is now desperate to get back to those good old days of Mayor of London. Uh, uh, yes, uh, but 
we're not going to change people's opinion of the government. I think, unfortunately for Boris Johnson, people's minds are now set. Um, you can't do, you can't have the free school meals incident twice without fixing the same image of yourself in people's heads. Um, the damage is already done. Perhaps the damage has been done and maybe removing Dominic Cummings and Lee Kane is perhaps seen as the way to do that, to almost scapegoat them. But do you think that there is a, a sort of hanging legacy of Cummings and Kane in Downing Street? I think the real legacy of Cummings and Keynes is that in Downing Street, we now have a black hole. They supported someone who was totally unfit for the job. Um, and now we are stuck with him while they have, they have gone, ventured off free to the next adventure. Um, so God, God help us. Hopefully Boris can settle their job now, but uh, it's, I, don't, I don't see it happening. Yeah. And Noah, I just want to come to you finally. Where, where do you sit on this? Is the government re- going to go for this massive reset now? And what do you think the legacy is going to be? Well, I, I personally think there's nothing wrong with a prime minister seeking advice from his or her fiancé. Do we really think Tony Blair didn't rely on any advice from Sherry Blair? Do we really think Gordon Brown made all of his decisions without consulting Sarah Brown? Of course not. Prime ministers naturally would do that. They'd ask their partner what they think. They'd ask them for advice, as you would in any other profession at all. As for the reshape of government, it's clear you're seeing a division between either a vote leave style of government or a sort of city hall Boris Johnson style of government. And given the reports in the media, it's clear that he'd like to go back to that city hall age and we're all united about the Olympics. And so he can win over the sort of voters that David Cameron was able to win in 2015 to get that overall majority. There's one factor that's going to stop that from happening, though, Brexit. People that like David Cameron willing to vote for him in 2010, 2015 may have seen themselves as Conservative voters then, but were pro-European. And they're not simply going to swing behind Boris Johnson because he offers some new environmental legislation when he's taking them out of the European Union. And that's like they wish had never happened. Perhaps maybe Boris Johnson will find himself swinging down the zip wire again. We can, we can only imagine. We can only hope. <laughs> anyway, that's it on Dominic Cummings. We'll be talking um, about some other aspect of the government perhaps are they leaning too much on the private sector but first this looking for a bite to eat at the warwick su daily specials and fine dining experience the brand new canopy karaoke pub grub and lager on top at the dirty duck salad and sarnies to go in the bread oven or a latte link up at curiosity there's something to suit any taste and any budget and if you've got a big night ahead of the copper room start it right at t-bar with speciality cocktails best stock prices and our expertly stock bar overlooking the piazza at warwick su outlets there's something to satisfy every taste Raw Breakfast, the feel-good way to start your day. This is Breakfast Radio for Warwick students, by Warwick students. Playing the feel-good hits and brightening up your morning. Plus, we have the best gaps, games and giveaways to freshen up your stagecoach commute. Listen to Raw Breakfast every day from 8am. Across campus, online and on 12.51am. This, this, this is your student radio station. We are sticking with the UK government, moving away from Dominic Cummings, Lee Kane and all of that to something else. And this has been something that the government have been quite heavily criticised for at times is we've heard a lot about um, Serco Test and Trace. We've heard a lot about criticisms directed at the government towards their use of Dido Harding, someone the former chair of Talk Talk as the head of Test and Trace. Kate Bingham is the head of the Vaccine Task Force and came out today Michael Sager who acted as a sort of third party in PPE procurement in Spain getting paid £21 million. Of course we're talking about 
allegations of cronyism within the government at the moment. And the government being seen or perceived to be paying off their friends within the coronavirus pandemic and potentially being alleged to private to prioritize potentially their interests ahead of the public interest by going through much, so much through the private sector. It's of course a very interesting debate for the public private sector. It's always something that really digs deep at the heart of government policymaking. And earlier this week, Angela Rayner called for an inquiry into potential cronyism in the government's response to the coronavirus pandemic. So Noah, let's come to you first on this because we've obviously seen a lot of the criticism of alleged cronyism, but at the same time, a lot of the most important advancements in the pandemic, whether that comes to um, the production of ventilators, the procurement of PPE, a lot of that has come through the private sector. So where do you where do you see this? Do you think that the government are engaging too much in cronyism? Um, I don't think most people are completely opposed to the use of private sector contracts as a whole. It's not like the state can produce everything. So where it's clear that private sector companies, whether it's ensuring that there are enough ventilators, adequate PPE, or indeed um, making a vaccine where they can be used, I don't think people will be against that in all circumstances. But it is completely right, as you say, over the cronyism, which is so wrong. It should go to the company for the best for doing the job. It should be based on a track record. They should have proven evidence where they've proven themselves capable of um, fulfilling the role that the government want them to fulfil. And also it should be a look at a sort of cost-benefit analysis of the government, which, uh, you know, let's, let us remember that governments don't have any money. They're using taxpayers' money. Where they are spending money for these contracts, they're not being completely ripped off and it is a reasonable amount of money for the service that they want to get. So I can believe that the cronyism is completely wrong, where it's completely obvious that it's only because of who knows who. Actually, the use of pri- the private sector, where it can be proven to do a better job than government, is no bad thing. No, definitely. And Enoch, if I can come to you next, one of the biggest controversies that the government has had has been that there's been a lack of competition when it comes to many of the contracts, particularly with Serco and Test and Trace. So do you think perhaps that the government it is a sign that the government are engaging in some form of cronyism if they're not even opening it up to some sort of bidding war? These accusations of cronyism are nothing new in British government. I mean, look back at David Cameron's time. We literally called it democracy because he would just support his friends for everything. And I, I, it's obviously it's a massive issue. There's no competition. People are getting pointed to jobs they clearly don't seem very well equipped for and they paid huge amounts for it. Um, the question has to be, there has to be a question of if these people are still qualified, is that, is that the biggest issue in the world? Obviously, I would prefer it was an open competition. But if these people are qualified to do jobs, maybe right now is not the time to have an inquiry into it. But after this whole crisis is over. Well, I mean, we imagine that there will be an inquiry into coronavirus at some point. And of course, the government's response to that will come under quite heavy scrutiny. Of course, Garcay is a very interesting one, because when we talk about some of the names, is it perhaps that there's a sort of public perception that is leading to these allegations of cronyism that perhaps is not justified? So take Dido Harding, for example. Dido Harding was the um, former chief executive of, of Talk Talk, a communications company, and someone who used to is used to running large logistical networks across the UK. And arguably, is it s- someone who's used to those logistics who is more suitable to something like test and trace rather than something maybe a health expert who obviously knows the importance of testing, but may not have the logistical skills to manage it? Well, there's been the question of um, what to do about asymptomatic cases. 
right? Because the current test and trace scheme only requires you to get tested if you develop symptoms, which leaves out a lot of uh, patients who have COVID-19 but don't show any symptoms, right? So I think part of the problem with relying just on the logistical technical expertise alone is that it leaves out all, this, all of the science. Well, the government claims to be following the science, but uh, it doesn't seem to be filtering through to the way that the actual test and trace program, for example, is being executed. Well, there's certainly quite an interesting thing there with the science and obviously the advice and how the government have been following that. Um, just one last question. I want to put it to everyone quickly. Is and We talked about anti-Burnham earlier. And one of the criticisms that the government has had is that it's not necessarily delegated a lot of the things like test and trace, for example, to the local authorities who have a much better local knowledge. And instead, it has ended up within the private sector. So is it a case then that the government should centralise the entire response in Westminster? Should they be delegating it out to the local authorities? Or is it perhaps through greater efficiency that they give it all to the private sector or indeed a bit of all three? What was your preferred solution? So, Enoch, let's come to you first. So obviously centralisation is in general bad. I'm a big fan of devolving powers to people who actually know what's going on. So I think... Give, give more money and give more supplies to the smaller local councils. And then if they choose to start bringing more private enterprise into it, that's going to be a deal for them. But it should be majority done by the government. That's my firm opinion. Okay, Noah, let's come to you on this. This is it, It's a very interesting debate in terms of, because the private sector, obviously the argument is, is that they've seen to be efficient and that they have these unlimited capacity that perhaps the government doesn't have. But also, of course, it has potentially many people on the left would say a profit motive that leads to it providing more for itself than it does potentially for the good of everyone else where, where do you sit on this yeah i agree with you know i sort of go for a bit of everything really i think when you're dealing with a pandemic that's going to affect the whole country you have to have an aspect of it that is centralized and i think one of the sort of dangerous things that we've seen about devolution particularly with scotland and wales is the fact that those administrations have been able to set their own policies i think when it's like affecting the whole uk while scotland wales and northern ireland are still in the uk there has to be an aspect that comes from westminster i think with that also you can have a mix of the two there you can say that it's local authorities you know while, while some people in westminster will have data access to data information resources that wouldn't be available across the country there will be aspects where local authorities do know better and are more aware of what would be appropriate for their local areas so i think the mixture of the two as i say i'm not completely opposed to use of the private sector but what i fear about that is a lack of accountability not least if it's the only private sector company that are being in use rather than a whole lot of competition whereas for all the flaws of central government and local government at least they're accountable to voters at subsequent elections across campus online and on 12:51 a.m this 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 is your student radio station that was nothing hurts like love for the first time by this world's life here on raw 12:51 a.m and yes you are still listening to the alternative view it has just gone four o'clock and you're seeing now to the second hour of our show it is great to be back um on our second prime time slot this term and again if you missed our first hour um you can listen to it plus all of the discussion that we're having today on spotify on mixcloud and all the streaming platforms that we will we broadcast onto so please do check that out and of course please do like our facebook page and follow us on twitter as well to stay updated with all of the brilliant things I, I say I'm biased that we are doing brilliant things, but all of the things that we are doing the end of this term and also some of the things that we will be planning 
to do over the Christmas break as well. Stay tuned for that. Anyway, speaking of the Christmas break, um, the university today have um, come out and basically given us a series of, uh, given us an email explaining a sort of series of issues and a series of things that we'll be doing in terms of coming home for Christmas. And I wanted to ask my guests about that because obviously last Wednesday, the government announced that there was a plan to bring students home to get mass testing of students and to have them brought home within a window of the 3rd to the 9th of November. Now, the university have um, just come out um, with an email yesterday and they have said the following, that they will be testing students throughout week nine, that students will take two tests and need to return um, two tests within three days. They'll need to return both negative. Um, They have said that all teaching will be moving online in week 10 to allow students to go home and within that period of the third to the ninth they will be moving students off campus and allowing them to go home within that time and giving them specific slots now of course if you do test positive in that time you are expected to self-isolate for 10 days within your flat but interestingly the university said that if one of your flatmates tested positive that you yourself would be able to return home provided that you self-isolated at your home for 14 days. Of course, there's some very interesting emissions there. Um, doesn't really say a lot about off-campus students. Obviously, we know that Warwick have their test and trace system on campus, but it's no confirmation as to whether the testing system applies to off-campus students. There's no confirmation as to whether this even, the whole message really applies to them, apart from the fact that online t- that all online teaching is taking place during week 10, apart from some labs. So let's firstly get my guest's opinion on this. So Garke, let's come to you first. What do you think of the university here? Do you think that this is an encouraging step or do you think there's still too many omissions? There's too much we still don't know. Uh, One, I think you're absolutely right that there's too much we still don't know in terms of the university's position. But two, I think more importantly, we need a lot more clarity in what the university's position actually is. Right, so there's there's a lot of, details and details and details of you know what all those uh what the um week 10 regime is going to look like um but exactly how that's going to be carried out who's going to get prioritized and so on and so forth um those are all the details that are missing and if we could get a lot more transparency and a lot more clarity on those that would help a lot um the other thing i also ought to mention is that this says nothing about the implications or potentially says nothing about the implications for international students. So are international students going to be treated differently from students who are staying within the bounds of the UK, for example? Well, that, that, that's actually a very interesting point. I'm going to quickly co- come to you on that before I go to know, because international students is a very interesting one, because for a lot of international students, they'd have to see if they go home to their own country, then and most likely have to come back to the UK and self-isolate for two weeks, really, apart from a very few exceptions. And of course, there is the risk of obviously transmission in terms of picking up on public transport, going home as well. And indeed, if flights, I know certainly of students struggling to book trains home in the UK, it must be very difficult to book flights back home and then getting making sure you can get back in time for your teaching at the start of January. So what, what do you think about that? Do you think the university needs to provide a lot more clarity and a lot more flexibility for international students? So I, I think you're absolutely right to point out that uh, there needs to be more clarity, more flexibility uh, as regards uh, the position for international students. Um, and there also needs to be flexibility in terms of 
the way European students get treated, for example, versus students who live further afield, uh, because they, they might have different, uh, different needs. Uh, so there are lots of factors that need to be taken into consideration. And already, even without those factors taken in, the picture seems to be quite muddy. So um, uh, the long and short of it is uh, more clarity, please. Well, I think that clarity is an interesting point. And now, if I can come to you, firstly, um, what do you make of the announcement from the university? And secondly, the university have kind of been saying so far they're very much following what the government is telling them to do. Um, what, what do you think? Do you think that the university could perhaps be doing more? Or do you think it's that the government needs to be providing more clarity on how they can get students home safely for Christmas? Well, it's very easy for students and anyone else to bash universities, so, but I will speak up in defence of them for just a bit. And I think it's really good that they almost want to try their best to ensure the ideal of students being able to go home for Christmas can be achieved and that the idea that students should be with their families towards the end of the year throughout the festive season, which I'm a huge fan of, the fact they want that to happen as much as possible, I think is something to be celebrated rather than just saying, no, you'll remain in your flats for the whole of December, which I think would be extremely demoralising and depressing, not least of all the uh, international students coming from abroad. But it's obvious that with that, if you're going to have 1.2 million students moving around the country, so within the country and others overseas that is going to present a logistical challenge um, with managing COVID too so I think it's helpful the idea that they won't be able to test negative but also test negative with enough time uh, to be able to have their self-isolation period and then hopefully be able to go home uh, with their family for Christmas day but like you said I mean for me I think I live off campus so therefore I want more clarity about what this means for off campus people do we have to leave by the 9th of December does it apply for us in the same way do we have to get two tests we do go on to campus but we're not on it as much as um, first years and postgraduates that are permanently on campus so I think there has been a lack of clarity about that and just sort of knowing where I stand and what the situation is that'd be um, helpful when planning my uh, journey home next month. Well it is that logistics is a really interesting point and Enoch if I can come to you on that point specifically we know that um, tests and trace has not been the hallmark of the UK coronavirus response and we're seeing that the government are implementing this new mass testing approach. Obviously, Liverpool has been the pilot. And the tests that they're using are not the, the traditional tests where you get a swab and you get a result back within 24 to 48 hours. It's these new lateral flow tests that are expected to produce a result um, within 15 to 30 minutes. Now, they're not as accurate, which I can only hypothesise is why the university would be doing two tests of these two tests that have to be three days apart as well. So what, what do you make of this? Do you think that the university have the logistical capacity in place to be able to handle the potential mass testing of 26,000 students? Well, I think the, the key thing that reassures me, I say reassures me, um, the key thing that makes me think it's very it's possible is the fact the university emphasises that this is for on-campus students. Um, if they were to think of testing every single student who went to work university, I would say right now, impossible, designed to fail, or designed to only favoritize. So it's obviously a complete disaster from start to finish. But if it's, it's just really is focusing on getting people on campus, which it has to be said is the most unsafe place for students to be, um, and getting them back home, I think that is um, absolutely vital. I do think it's very, very possible it could work. But do you think, though, and of course, the government have been making the point that we saw with the first wave or the start of the second wave, a lot of people sort of put a lot of the blame on students going back to universities and the movement of over one million students across the country created, it was seen to create these new hotspots. And indeed, there was a correlation where student terms started, cases did rise 
quite significantly. We did see that not just on campus, but also in Leamington and Coventry as well. So do you think that there's a potential blind spot by not having a system in place for students living off campus? And do you think perhaps it's a responsibility of students living off campus themselves to get themselves tested before they go home? Uh, I think I think. Let's not. Let's be very clear here. This is going to be a disaster. No, no matter what way this goes, um, students going over Christmas is going to be a disaster. It's a disaster the government and university had not thought ahead far enough to see for some reason. Um, they should be. Um, you know, Noah said earlier he doesn't want to bash universities, um, but I, I would because it's both easy and fun. Um, yeah, the universities <laughs> are completely me- uh, messed up here. Um, but it has to be said, people are going to go over Christmas. Well, question is now, how are we going to prepare for that? Um, if we can, I, I obviously I don't think mass testing is going to work for everyone living in their own off-campus accommodation. But if, if we could just build some kind of system to make it work, that's all we're really asking for right now. Any attempt to build a system to make this work, to mitigate this at any level, is all we can really ask for. Well, yeah, and I think that's really the interesting point with regards to that. And it's not just getting students back home for Christmas, but it's getting them back in January as well. And that is something we haven't heard from the government about yet. And of course, there is a fear that we will have exactly what happened in September, October, with cases rising in a lot of university towns and cities happen all over again at a time when the NHS is typically at its most pushed at the height of the winter flu season. So, Garke, let's start off with you again. Do you think the government needs to be doing a lot more to be sorting out students coming back in January? And what one, what should they be doing? Uh, you absolutely hit the nail on the head, I think, in your question. Um, the uh, the return of students in January is, again, a disaster just waiting to happen. And you know, the fact that students uh, came in September and cases rose was itself predictable. But this should not be happening again the second time around. If it does happen the second time around, there's going to be a lot of anger from, I, I, I predict there's going to be a lot of anger from, uh, not just from students themselves, but also from parents. Uh, we've seen chaos in Manchester with students being hemmed in uh, with plastic fencing and what have you um, to try to um, c- control transmission or what have you. So um, I, I think the government needs to think not just about the impl- implications for Christmas, but the implications for the new year into the spring term and potentially um, the knock-on effects for summer as well. And then the question is, uh, if the pandemic continues to persist beyond that, what's going to happen for the new academic year? How, how can the government ensure that uh, the mistakes that were made this time around don't get repeated in 2021-22? Yeah, I think it's important just to say on that first point that um, what's happened in Manchester University came out and said it was a security issue not related to coronavirus at all. Of course, not a very good look for PR. Um, Enoch, you said that campus is the least safe place really for students to be right now. And talking about obviously academia, now we saw obviously online teaching has been the big debate on campus this term. And we saw it quite heavily defeated emotion calling for support for online teaching um, was rejected quite overwhelmingly by students last week. So do you think perhaps that despite that, there has to be a move maybe for something like that in January, if that is the safest option, or if students have to go for some form of compulsory self-isolation, maybe? Yeah. If, I, if I'm Stuart Croft and I'm, the, oh, I'm Boris Johnson or um, Gavin Williamson, I guess, this still has his job in a few months, who knows? Um, and I'm, I'm looking at the situation right now. I'm going, look, 
by April, it's very likely we'll have a vaccine ready for some degree of mass distribution. Um, it's been a pain getting students to go home. It'll be an absolute nightmare getting them back to university and getting that restarts again after sending them home for December. I, I think it's very likely we're going to see a situation when university and government goes, how about online learning for term two? That's a way we can make it work. Um, and then, but once we get one vaccinated, you start coming back in term three. I think that that's a more like situation I'm looking looking forward now. Okay, Noah, what do you think to that? Do you think that the government might say, because we do know that obviously we have the Pfizer vaccine, we have the Moderna vaccine as well that came out 95% effective and they're still doing tests there. We know the Oxford vaccine is being trolled as well. And these vaccines are expected to start being rolled out early 2021. So do you think then that, Yes, we may have to accept that term two may be even more significantly disrupted than it was term one. But if that keeps students and it keeps the population safe, then so be it. Um, well, I hope not. And I think it'd be a terrible move if all of teaching was moved online for term two. Um, you know, we have to remember that in this new lockdown, one of the key differences has been that schools stayed open because we recognise that they are actually an essential place to be in or out of a pandemic. And the same should be regarded with universities. They're vital sort of beacons for learning, places for research, and they are important institutions. And yes, online seminars have some merit, but they're nothing compared to actually being um, and interacting with others in person. I think it's been, you know, really demoralising and clearly upsetting for those that have had to self-isolate for two weeks, um, whether on campus or off campus. And I think having to do that again for the whole of term two um, would be awful, especially if people were um, at home, they've just not got a suitable place to work. They haven't got a practical space. It's brilliant if you live in a big house and you've got a garden, you've got lots of spare rooms to get your work done. It isn't brilliant if you're in a cramped flat and you're trying to sort of compete for, for space to complete your work. I think it would be a disaster. Well, it's not for us to rehash an old debate on online teaching here. But of course, a lot of considerations, I think, have to be brought up there with um, with students getting home safely for campus. Um, Will they, of course, be interested to see how that goes? Uh, we will be back after this. Music. Welcome back to another week of Psychedemics. Hello, everybody. You're listening to The Vinny Show. You are listening to Rockstar. I'm I just think the style that Marvel has made has just put them like way above. Speed. You must get to the maths and stats building using three different modes of transport. Oh my god, there's a trolley. It's really all about like educating, networking, and sharing our stories. I think the SU has a really uh, important role in engaging students with politics. News. Good evening and welcome to the big decision. Ben and Larissa tied. This is your student radio station. This is Raw 1251 AM. Across campus, online, and on 12:51 a.m. This, this, this is your student radio station. I, I noticed something before we come on air, actually, and of course, it's I accrue songs from the playlist every week, and I play them on the show. But I've noticed there's quite a theme with Ariana Grande songs in the last year. I don't know what my panel think, but does Ariana Grande not know about capital letters? <laughs> is that just me? Uh, just for, for those of you listening at home, it's just me shrugging. But if you think about it, I think, thank you, next. 
was not capitalized at the start. Um, Five Rings was not capitalized. The last song I can remember that was properly capitalized was, I think, I think it was um, No Tears Left to Cry or something. Anyway, I just noticed that. But when you go on Spotify, I just see loads of uncapitalized titles. And obviously, Ariana Grande is a very good singer, a very good life. But as someone who does have a bit of a stickling for grammar, it does annoy me slightly. But I'm not going to sort of debunk anything because her music is very good. Anyway, moving on. Um, Brexit. Uh, equally quite a digestible topic, I think, for us to go through. Obviously, Brexit has been uh, dominating um, the news cycle for the last few years. And it seems perhaps we are going to reach ahead on Brexit in the next couple of months. Of course, the UK left the European Union on January 31st earlier this year. And since then, we have been in this transition period, seeking a future relationship, seeking a future trade deal with the EU. But it seems that it, it has, the negotiations have seemed to stall, and now we really are at crunch time. Transition period ends on December the 31st. The government are committed to not extending that period and if there is no trade deal sought, the government are insistent they want a Canada plus style free trade agreement. If not, they will trade on what the government had termed as an Australian style deal, effectively no trade deal at all. And leaving very much on the sort of bare basics of the withdrawal agreement, which includes a still controversial elements with regards to the Irish border. I want to get my guest opinion on this because, of course, it's fishing, it's state aid it's competition it's those three points that seem to be the real stickler in these brexit negotiations and it's not clear if these negotiations will achieve any breakthrough on this so noah let's come to you first do you think this is the week we are finally going to get a deal well i'd like to think so i mean and firstly a it's just amazing to be talking about brexit once again and b at least brexit is capitalized so whatever else is wrong about it at least you're not going to be annoyed <laughs> in that aspect um but as for getting a deal i mean it reminds me a lot actually of when Theresa may was trying to strike the withdrawal agreement back in i believe november 2018 so when you know i hadn't even started university and there's a lot of talk before you're making me now. feel so old now no, i know don't, don't. i know i know we're, we're all golden oldies now um and they're just sort of looking at like we thought would there be a deal would there not be a deal and then finally that agreement was reached i remember the evening it happened it was quite remarkable before all her cabinet started bashing it and dominic raab resigned um i'd like to think there'd be a deal simply because the cost of not reaching a deal and just leaving without any kind of proper agreement in place would be so disastrous the most ironic thing i think about this agreement is the fact that boris johnson recognizes the the, the original withdrawal agreement and future dec future political declaration was so wrong because of the way that they treat northern ireland and so it was through this internal market bill that they recognize is that the agreement that they had struck, the agreement that they said was up and ready, was signed, it was so bad, it meant they had to break the law in a very specific um, specific way through the internal market bill. So clearly, even if they do reach a deal, they know the original agreement they struck was so bad, they've had to break international laws, try and make it somewhat better. Well, yes, and Enoch, um, on Insight, obviously you covered the machinations of the internal market bill a lot. And I think one of the things that come out from the internal market bill is it really through a spanner in the works in terms of the sense that the UK, perhaps the EU accused them of acting in bad faith, of breaking the withdrawal agreement. And for some people, it's said to have really not helped Boris Johnson at all to put this in and not really brought him any favours. Um, what, what do you think? Because obviously the internal market bill is having issues passing through the House of Lords at the moment and still may not 
even past. So do you think that the spectre of that still being there, even though it is struggling in the Lords, will have an impact on these negotiations or almost necessitate the need to get a deal to avoid it being implemented? Um, I think the internal market bill is dead. Um, that's because there's an even bigger spectre now lurking over Brexit negotiations, and that's Joe Biden. Um, Joe, um, Donald, Boris is really relying on Donald Trump to be saving grace in these negotiations. I mean, he can't do that anymore. He can't rely on Donald Trump for that American trade deal. He now needs to work with Joe Biden, what Joe Biden wants to be happening in Europe and in England. And frankly, Joe Biden was against Brexit, but he seems to have accepted it. Um, he's not going to be happy with anything messing the mess around the Good Friday Agreement, which in the, the internal market bill, it, it does. It just does. I think we can all accept that. Um, how, how that's going to affect Brexit negotiations. I don't think we're going to see a push for a softer... I mean, it's... It, I, I don't think we're at a point where we can still see a push for a softer Brexit. I think we're well past that at this point. But I do think we're approaching a point where we, we might see a government that's more willing to concede some things for political capital they can use in other places. Well, that's, that point of concession is a very interesting one. And Garke, if I can come to you now, what do you think both sides, both the UK and the EU, might be willing to concede? To get a deal. We know that the EU are very strict on the integrity of their internal market. We know that the UK have quite a few red lines when it comes to things, for example, like fishing, when it comes to the ability to freely negotiate a lot of their trade agreements. So what do you think both sides might be willing to give up if it means we can strike a deal? Uh, I think that actually, when you when it comes down to it, uh, the concessions that the UK will be able to extract out of the EU, if anything at all, be very minimal, uh, simply because of the, the economic size of the EU compared to the United Kingdom. Uh, so, um, in fact, I, yeah, the, the, the possibility that uh, the UK can extract significant concessions is very, very small, I think. Uh, and if anything, it would probably be the other way. So the, the EU might, in fact, use Joe Biden's presidency uh, in order to leverage more out of uh, the UK's position. And in fact, you know, uh, you're quite right to point out that uh, the EU is insisting on the integrity of its, of its internal market. It, it doesn't want to, um, it wants to encourage a level playing field, right? And it, it doesn't want to encourage uh, other uh, EU countries uh, to imitate the British example. Uh, so for those reasons, the EU has very significant interests in ensuring that uh, Brexit imposes serious costs. Uh, from the UK's point of view. Well, I guess that thing about cost is a very interesting thing. And we know that a lot of Brexiteers have accused the EU of acting in bad faith in these negotiations towards the UK. One very interesting question, though, and I guess this is really reflected by the fact that Boris Johnson got a deal or the withdrawal agreement was originally signed two weeks before the October 31st deadline that there was last year. And there is this maxim that the EU very much works to the 11th hour, that you do deals at the last minute, and you get those last minute breakthroughs and there are concessions from both sides in the end. So what, what do my guests think of that? Do you think that there will be a similar process this time? And do you think, because we know the EU Parliament have said that they need to get this done by the end of the month, otherwise they're not going to be able to meet and not going to be able to pass a trade deal. So Enoch, let's come to you first. Do you think that there is enough time, if a deal is agreed, to get it ratified and to get it implemented? 
Yeah. Well, I think the key thing to remember of the initial withdrawal agreement was the big concession there was Boris saying, actually, you know what, fine, let the border be in the Irish Sea. Um, so I think if that holds true for this, we're going to get in a case where Boris is going to look at the deadline, he's going to go, I will concede things just to get this done, because I don't want to be the guy I have to go out to British people and say, sorry, I've messed Brexit up again. We've got another dead, we've got another delay. He wants to be the guy who says, Brexit's finished. I've done it. I've included. And he knows the fact it might matter is people, the big secret is that people don't really get all the deal stuff. It doesn't really make any sense to them. All that matters is the idea that a deal's been done and been passed. And I think Boris understands that way more than Theresa May does. So he knows if he can just walk back with that deal in hand, he will have won. Do you think perhaps that the impacts of coronavirus, what impact do you think they might have had on the necessity to get a deal, but also potentially if there's so much of a focus on coronavirus that there won't be such a backlash if there is no deal? What what do you think the impact of COVID has been on that? Well, yeah, COVID has really sort of smothered the story of Brexit in, in its bed. Um, you know, all the fury that people used to have about Brexit has now been fully refocused. Even Nigel Farage has moved on from UK, from EU to lockdown. That's the real main, that's the real main focus for people now. So I think Boris Johnson has a lot more leeway when making decisions, because I think a lot of the heat has been taken off him on Brexit. Um, but I think he shouldn't forget his own party is still very much very focused on Brexit. Um, but I, I think the biggest thing outside of England and imported in so you don't want any more you don't want any import delays when it comes to trade especially since we've uh, all the stories thinking about the conditions that have to be kept in and how very tempestuous they are if exposed to even something slightly too warm well it's a very interesting point you make there because Noah the UK have already kind of agreed to sort of a delay in some elements of imports I believe meat and fish are some of the products that the UK are potentially delaying some of the checks on imports for just to allow an easier transition. So would you say that perhaps that shows there's quite a clear resolve that come what may or not December the 31st, the transition period ends deal or no deal? Well, I mean, the transition period legally will end. It was back in July the 1st. It was the last day that the UK or the EU could request an extension to it. And that simply came and went. They decided that a pandemic wasn't enough for justification for extending it by even another couple of months, by half a year, which just shows really the importance of Brexit. And I agree with Enoch. I think lots of people that voted leave course people voted to leave for sort of 17.4 million different reasons some will have been about free trade but that would have been I, I imagine a minority and so I think for a lot of people unless you're really into trade and economics and look through the minutiae detail actually the media image of having got a deal will be more important than actually the specific details I think for a lot of people they simply wanted to leave and so that when there was such opposition to the backstop I think that became it showed really that parliamentarians were more interested than detail than actually most of the general public um, but in terms of putting these delay on things I think it's clear that you know they, they want the idea as frictionless trade but clearly by going for this harder version of Brexit that simply isn't going to happen and so a lot of it will come down to media images you know what is it like at the port of Dover are there long queues are there queues of lorries if there are Aren't, then that will have been a huge success of the government and they could say we've left the transition period has ended and things are carrying on as usual but if there are all these lorries and it does just look like absolute chaos i'm sure many people will wonder well what was the point of that we've regained our independence but for what well when it comes to media image obviously garke one of the most striking tweets that came out after dominic cummings's departure was him obviously leaving downing street with his box of things obviously an image that generated quite a lot of interest and quite a lot of furor about it but Nigel Farage tweeted about it 
and said that he feared that that box represented the Brexit that he had campaigned for and a lot of Brexiteers wanted walking out of Downing Street and the UK now potentially erring towards this softer Brexit. I don't want to bring up Cummings too much, but do you think his departure and the departure of the vote leave cabal has changed the dynamic of this last round of negotiations and potentially what the UK might be willing to compromise on? I don't think so very much. So I think the uh, the path that we've travelled down has already been pretty well committed to. Uh, there's not much room for manoeuvre, particularly as we're going into the last month, last two months of negotiation. There will probably be a deal struck at the eleventh hour, uh, just to just to show for the you know for, for for the cameras that Johnson has produced a deal, right? But it'll probably be a very very thin deal at most. Um, uh, so my view is that. Uh, because of all the decisions taken, you know, pre this point, uh, we've effectively committed ourselves into a corner uh, and there won't be much escape from it, I'm afraid. Well, that corner is certainly something will be interesting to see and how the last round of negotiations go. Of course, it's expected to end at the end of the week. Don't know whether we'll get a deal or not yet. We don't know whether whatever happens on December the 31st is going to be very interesting to see. And we will be sticking with Brexit, although hypothesizing almost what happens if we didn't go through the last four years what happens if this country voted to remain in 2016 that coming up after this looking for a bite to eat at the warwick su daily specials and fine dining experience at the brand new canopy karaoke pub grub and lager on top at the dirty duck salad and sarnies to go in the bread oven or a latte link up at curiosity there's something to suit any taste and any budget and if you've got a big night ahead of the copper room start it right at tea bar with speciality cocktails best stock prices and our expertly stock bar overlooking the piazza at warwick su outlets there's something to satisfy every taste your breakfast, the feel-good way to start your day. This is Breakfast Radio for Warwick students, by Warwick students. Playing the feel-good hits and brightening up your morning. Plus, we have the best gaps, games and giveaways to freshen up your stagecoach commute. Listen to Raw Breakfast every day from 8am. Across campus, online and on 12.51am. This, this, this is your student radio station. It is, we were talking about Brexit just now. And as we come into our last segment of our two-hour primetime show, firstly, thank you very much if you've been sticking with us the whole way. Um, let's talk about, well, I want to start something new. We are starting the first of our political counterfactuals last week and inspired by an essay I wrote for a module last year, which I know is not the most exhilarating inspiration ever. But we are going to take an event in history and we're going to just think about what might have happened if it voted the other way. It is very much the ultimate what if question that you tend to see on YouTube and loads of people sort of hypothesizing. I've seen some great ones over the years. And I thought as we've been talking about Brexit, let's really focus on that vote. What if the UK had voted to remain in 2016? It seems perhaps would we have had a more peaceful or less divisive four years would we have had Donald Trump potentially? Would we have had two elections? Would Miller fandom have come back? So much to discuss there. So let, let's start off then. I just want to sort of get a general sense from everyone what they think might happen. So Noah, let's come to you first. What is the first thing that pops into your head of what would happen if you think the UK voted to remain? 
it's amazing really to think about i mean i love a counterfactual so i already love this section of the show <laughs> um but it, it's amazing to think about because it feasibly could have happened i remember when polls shut at 10 p.m nigel farage almost conceded the result he said i think we've just lost it for lee but you know it's been a good night for us and amazing to get so many people to turn out so he conceded before actually realizing that he'd won i think clearly um david cameron would have remained prime minister but I think he might have been shot by if it had been a really small margin for Remain. He'd have had to be very magnanimous and say, we recognise all of those that have left. I think he might have done a cabinet reshuffle and perhaps demoted Theresa May, because although she was for Remain, she actually only gave one proper speech advocating Remain throughout the whole campaign. The Britain stronger in Europe tried to get her more involved, but she just refused to be engaged with it. So I think she could have been demoted from Home Secretary. But I think Cameron would have certainly had some authority to say, yes, I've won, even though the, the margin was a small one. Well, it's quite an interesting position there, because I don't think many people expected that the referendum, why well, decided they were going to win it, they weren't going to win it by much. Of course, Enoch, one of the things we saw immediately after the referendum was almost a sort of sea change in the Tory party, which had been very divided on Europe. And for the most part, it corralled around the referendum result. And a lot of those heavily associated with the Leave campaign took a much more senior role, even under Theresa May's government. So what, what's your, what do you think would have happened then if we voted to remain? Do you think that the likes of Theresa May perhaps become prime minister, but also figures including Liz Truss, Priti Patel, even Boris Johnson might have been so influential in British politics as they are now? Um, I think no one's getting rid of Boris Johnson. It would probably take a nuclear bomb to get Boris Johnson out of British politics at this point. Um, not even a not even a plague could do, a literal plague couldn't do it. Um, I think Free for Tell probably wouldn't be as, as heavily involved as I think we'll probably be seeing a very different political situation where as you know, as Noah said, maybe Theresa May is gone, David Cameron's serving at he just finished serving his last year as Prime Minister, 2019, and then we had a leadership race at the end. Boris Johnson's probably right now sitting on his laurel saying, Sorry, I voted leave everyone, remains the way to go, uh, England's better in Europe, and all that, you know, sort of cheerio pip up stuff. Um, I think I think we would have seen sort of immediately afterwards, maybe an attempt by Cameron to bring the Brexiteers in, not as seniorly as Theresa May did, probably junior roles, but so saying as a way of healing the party, bringing both sides together. I think we would have, uh, I mean, we would have seen a massive change of policy. I think we would have definitely stuck with sort of the more cent centre-right Cameroonism, Cam Cameroonism, you know, that, that sort of thing, rather than uh, Theresa May's politics of the people of nowhere versus people of uh, somewhere as as you know they said jeremy i imagine i actually am I, it's very possible actually that we probably already had a general election at some point um i imagine david cameron looking at those jeremy paul and corbyn poll numbers was very very happy i can only imagine that david cameron didn't do very bad he probably did better than Theresa made in 2017 um but he's, yeah, you know, he's definitely, he definitely had the power away after that. I imagine he got a sizable majority, not as well as, you know, old Bojo has, but, you know, definitely something decent. Um, yeah, it's also, got, it's not, it's, I, you know, the biggest change would be, I'll be a far more arrogant person because I've got the referendum result right. And I wouldn't have taken that blow to my confidence that I did back in 2015. <laughs> there is so much we can literally explore with this. So, Garke, let's kind of stick on the scene of the parties for now here in the UK. The Conservative Party, do you agree that it would have stayed very much around the David Cameron route? We know David Cameron was planning to not stand for a third term. So who do you think would have been prime minister? Do you think George Osborne still would have been around the British political scene, maybe? And also talking about Labour as well. Obviously, Jeremy Corbyn, 
a leadership vote was called in him by leader MPs, sorry, by Labour MPs after that referendum, very critical of his sort of lacklustre performance in the referendum. If Remain had won, do you think Corbyn would have been more secure in his MPs' eyes? And do you think that perhaps the momentum that he has built up over the last few years would still have existed? So I'll take those two questions in order. So firstly, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about the premiership. Uh, so I think that uh, Cameron would have nominated a continuity person very much in the kind of George Osborne mould um, to uh, have sort of uh, car- carried on the baton, as it were, uh, pass on, uh, someone to pass on the torch to. Uh, so, and, and there would be a kind of a Westminster consensus around like, that kind of modernising wing of the Conservative Party. Um, uh, well, whether that bodes well for um, the sort of the people at the other end of the spectrum is uh, is uh, is an interesting question. So I, I actually suspect that the uh, that a Remain victory would have just pushed all those questions further down the line, uh, in the sense of you know uh, the, the the white working class who don't feel like um, globalisation is delivering for them. They don't feel like they're getting a fair share of the social products. I think all those questions would have come back with a vengeance eventually at some point. Uh, in terms of the Labour leadership, uh, I think that um, I'm not necessarily sure that a Remain victory would have cemented Corbyn's position. Uh, I think, he, as as you point out, he was very sort of on the fence about the whole issue. So I, I think it, it, I think that there would still have been a, a, a very live internal debate. And whether um, and my suspicion actually is that uh, Labour would eventually push for uh, someone more in the Keir Starmer mode, a much more solid moderate Remainer type. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting one because, of course, one of the things that we would be saying right now is that the 2020 election, of course, this was the year we were supposed to have an election. Of course, coronavirus would have completely curtailed that. And we could have been in this position right now where we could have had an election and we could say who was definitely going to win that. Of course, with COVID, that we're assuming coronavirus still would have happened irregardless of Brexit. One of the things you mentioned, Garke, was about the sort of a lot of the reason for the Brexit voters, a lot of people talking about the white working classes being left behind and Brexit really embodying the rise of populism. So I just want to go around to my panel. We've got a few minutes left. Just ask them a few things that with regards to populism, that if Brexit didn't happen, perhaps not, might not have happened. So let's start with the obvious one, the election of Donald Trump. Do you think that the Brexit victory almost motivated people in the United States to see that the white working classes had a voice and that populism was a successful strategy and by that Donald Trump could win. So Enoch, let's, I'm going to put that question to you. Yeah, I, I think um, Trump happens when we're at Brexit, but if Trump had been elected before the referendum, we would not have had Brexit. I think that would have changed things. So, so do you think almost that people would have seen Donald Trump's victory and obviously Donald Trump being a controversial character himself do you think that that might have put people off yeah, in a sense I, I think the loss of a safe part in america may have made british people a lot more cautious when it came to thinking about that kind of thing well of course it's a very interesting perspective looking now of course boris johnson and donald trump had quite a strong personal bond over the course of johnson's premiership and now obviously it'll be interesting to see how happens with joe biden um noah the relationship with the EU. Now, we know David Cameron before the referendum had called for this sort of 
approach that took Britain out of a lot of the political centralization. And we know that within Europe, populism has been growing, whether you think of Marine Le Pen, uh, Matteo Salvini. Do you think that populism perhaps would have been as prevalent in Europe and calls for countries to leave the EU within Europe would have been as prevalent if Brexit didn't win? Well, I think what you would have had is uh, if Brexit hadn't happened is you wouldn't have had those like dire slogans like Frexit and people trying to make um, Brexit relevant to their country by changing the first letter, which I sort of somewhat cringe at. I don't think you'd have stopped the populism like Marine Le Pen. You know, the National Front in France had been dominant long before anyone had heard of the term Brexit, but they would have been able to sort of still use lots of the campaigning messages that they, sort of propaganda that they deploy. I disagree with it all, obviously, but obviously what they wouldn't have had is the traction of saying, look, the UK has supposedly regained its freedom vote for me and while I'm not for leaving the EU in its entirety I am for strong reform so they wouldn't have had that message from the UK that they could translate to their own campaigns but I think populism has far deeper roots and I think even the endorsement even a narrow endorsement of the UK remaining in the EU wouldn't have been enough to stop the opposition that's towards that exists towards the EU within many member states and actually still exists after we've left. Okay and Garke let's come to you very quickly Obviously, we're talking there about the impact on Europe. Um, do you think that there would have been this continued questioning that there is now over the neoliberal consensus almost that Brexit was seen as people reacting against what they saw as establishment politics? Do you think that that consensus on, on that or rising consensus, shall we say, against the establishment, do you think that that still would have been as prevalent? Yes. So as I mentioned in my previous response, I think that uh, a Remain victory would have just parked those questions and pushed them uh, further down the line. Uh, so uh, at some point, uh, the the establishment would have realised that, that, that there is this large contingent of voters who don't think that establishment politics is working for them. And we would have seen some kind of revolt in some way, shape or form, be that through nationalist movements, uh, be that through um, uh, some kind of... Uh, you know, bold right-wing move, right-nationalist move within the Conservative Party. Well, as we had said earlier, there is so much we could have discussed with this counterfactual, but there is only so much time we have. And that is it for this show today. Thank you so much um, to listening to Alternative View. It's been great to have your company for the last two hours. Thanks very much to my guests, to Noah, to Garke and to Enoch. Thank, Thank you very much for having us. us. It's been fantastic. Thanks very you on much. Today. No, it's great to have everyone on. We will be back same time, 3 p.m next Wednesday for our next two-hour show, bringing you up to date with what's happened over the last week and all of the wider debates that we have been having as well. See you next week.